Alright then, Fixed Plasm episode 83. I Am Legend by Richard Matheson. I felt I should do something for Halloween, but I also wanted to continue the uh, apocalyptic theme. And um, Richard Matheson's novel from 1954, I Am Legend, seems to be a pretty good fit for that. And it's a it's a really short book, and I have two editions. Um, the SF Masterworks in print, which was the first one I read, and this really gorgeous Folio Society copy, which my other half gave me for my birthday last year. And I've kind of been too precious to actually read it. Um, it's a it's a short book, but it's all killer, no filler. Um, so, as always, I'm going to give a brief synopsis of the book, um, and then I'm going to talk about themes and role-playing opportunities, and then talk about some further media. Spooky. So, for the synopsis, what you need to know is Richard Neville is apparently the last human alive, and the rest of humanity have been transformed into vampires by a bloodborne contagion. And he spends his day fortifying his house and staking vampires and the knights listening to classical music and trying to ignore the vampires outside demanding he come out. One of these vampires is, by the way, referred to by name as Ben Courtman. And this is a friend and neighbour of his. And it's Courtman who continually appeals to Neville to come out of his house night after night. Now, the first act is entitled January 1976. And Neville goes about his day-to-day business and he's completely on his own and it's clear that the isolation is getting to him. And at the same time, though, he's curious about the vampiric condition. So he studied anatomy. Uh, he, He knows which of the vampire myths of substance and which don't. So, for example, garlic works. Mirrors don't seem to. Uh, And as well as the biological aspect of vampirism, he's been brushing up on literature as well as musing over the significance of vampires. Uh, So, for example, we have this quote. The book was a hodgepodge of superstitions and soap opera cliches, but that line was true. No one had believed in them. And how could they fight something they didn't even believe in? That was what the situation had been. Something black and of the night had come crawling out of the Middle Ages, something with no framework or credulity, something that had been consigned, fact and figure, to the pages of imaginative literature. Vampires were passé. Some as Adil's or Stoker's melodramatics, or a brief inclusion in the Britannica, or grist for the pulp writer's mill, or raw material for B-film factories, a tenuous legend passed from century to century. Well, it was true. So, as I said, he does have some curiosity about the state of the world, but mostly he's living day to day, doing the chores he needs to survive and sometimes drinking himself into oblivion at night. Um, But things come to a head when, on one of his daytime excursions, he realises his watch has stopped, which means that he's miscalculated the timing of sunset. And this is nearly disastrous because he's not in his house to secure it. And the vampires trash his house, destroy his station wagon, uh, nearly destroy his generator. And that's kind of a very despairing end to the first act. The next act is a couple of months forward in March 1976. And at the start of this second act, Neville's rebuilt everything. And he realises that the long-term solution is to investigate the cause for a possible cure to vampirism. So he experiments, for example, with making allyl sulfide, which is the active ingredient in garlic, uh, you know, he, he captures and interrogates vampires on why they're afraid of the cross, with not a lot of success, frankly. Um, he also does things like muses over whether a Muslim vampire would even be afraid of a cross. Uh, he sets up a stream of running water near the house. Um, and then he starts to educate himself on disorders of the blood and on, on, on germs. 
and he builds a microscope from first principles. You know, he, he has to basically build this contraption and shield it from dust storms. Um, and he starts to draw various conclusions regarding the germ nature of vampires. And all of this is intercut with memories of his previous life with his wife and daughter before the collapse. So we're briefly told there's been a war against an unspecified enemy. Bombs were dropped and they've stirred up massive dust storms, plagues of mosquitoes and some kind of fever that makes people lethargic during the day. And the rest of his family fall to the virus, as does his friend and neighbour Ben Corton. And the other thing that happens in this act, uh, as well as him relentlessly pursuing this science, is he also befriends a dog, and he's subsequently devastated by losing it to the sickness. It's a brief passage, but it does underscore his emotional state. He's basically turned science into a hobby, and that's what's replaced his need for human and animal contact. And that then preps the reader for the third act, which is a couple of years later in June 1978. And this is where he meets a survivor, a woman called Ruth. At this stage, Neville's kind of more settled emotionally. It's clear that he's got out of the habit of drinking excessively. He's put on muscle and he's living a much healthier lifestyle. And then he is out on one of his uh, daily errands and he spots a woman in a field and he pursues her, basically drags her into the house, insisting that he's not going to hurt her. But nevertheless, she's obviously terrified. So this whole scene, at least the start of it, is pretty uncomfortable. You know, he, he chases her through the field, he drags her to the house um, and then he keeps her captive and despite the fact that oh, he thinks th he thinks that she is actually human alive because she's out during the daytime, he still doesn't completely buy a story. So he basically, um, he forces her to get very close to a massive bowl of cut garlic, which she finds revolting because she says she's, she's got a weak stomach. Uh, and he demands to check her blood for the vampiric bacilli. Uh, and then things sort of relax a bit and, um, he starts to form a sort of a civil relationship with her and they kind of approach this very brief state of a normal life um, being the last two humans alive, apparently. And while they're having this moment, and this is towards you know the, the latter third of the book, um, I think the most interesting thing that happens is he vocalises all of his theories about vampires. Now, so far, he's, he's basically come up with all these ideas about why vampires exist. He's had no one as a sounding board, so suddenly he's got a human, and he uh, he relates a very, a pretty coherent and well-thought-out theory that answers all the questions you might ask about vampires, like, why do they turn to ash when they're staked? Uh, you know, the scientific reasons they resist bullets, uh, why can't they abide sunlight? What happens during the day when they're effectively comatose? And up to this point, he's totally convinced himself that he's in the right. But when he shares these theories with Ruth, the way she reacts causes him to actually doubt. And this also tells us a little bit about Ruth. Of course, she's not just a human. You know, you can see that a mile off. Um, what she is actually is a new human face of vampirism. You know, basically, a new race that's overcome the curse of being a vampire through science. And in doing so, the vampires have basically self-organized into a new society that's able to reason and communicate. They, they do need to eradicate the feral first generation of vampires who are basically you know, mindless and violent animals. Um, but critically, they're also deathly afraid of humanity. Well, the last human, which is Neville. And that's really the punchline, is that Neville is now, not only is he in the minority, 
he's also done some pretty unspeakable things in their eyes against their kind because all he's been going out during the day and driving stakes through the hearts of any sleeping vampire he found uh killing dozens of them over the years probably hundreds in fact and as a consequence for their society to flourish he has to go and the humanity has to be ended and hence the title i am legend so in summary, it's it's a pretty thin plot overall, but I got a lot of pleasure in reading it again, looking at Neville's thought processes and the way he distracts himself in his isolation and the way he's also susceptible to distraction, having nothing else to occupy him. I want to talk about vampires as a theme and a role-playing theme, but that's quite broad. So I want to focus down on a couple of important genre points. And the first one I'm going to call vampire science. We're not talking just about the vampire genre, but a subset of the genre that explains vampires through science and treats them like an evolution of humanity rather than just monsters. And of course, a lot of the logic that Neville applies is fairly run-of-the-mill these days. You know, the the question of whether an atheistic vampire should feed a cross or whether you can synthesise garlic or sunlight. But bear in mind, this book was published in 1954 uh, and... I really think there's this sort of earnestness in Neville's scientific probing. You know, it's it's not cynical, it's not tongue-in-cheek, it's genuine curiosity. Um, I think it's a pretty good depiction of the scientific method. Now, in terms of science vampires, um, we have a lot of examples in games and media of using modern technology to synthesize the things that harm vampires. Blade's probably the best example I can think of that, you know, the uh, the um, hypercoagulant that uh, messes with vampire blood and uh, weapons that fire ultraviolet light. And of course, that's also used in the Kate Beckinsale franchise Underworld. That's okay. I mean, I, I did like Blade. I like the way that vampires effectively organize themselves into a corporation uh, so that they could consolidate their power and um, turn themselves into a global franchise but of course that only loosely dusts the surface of applied science to vampirism and the the interesting depiction of science here is the um, it is Neville's reasoning about how the vampiric bacillus the the germ inside the vampire uh, accounts for what he observes and how it spreads. So, for example, he theorizes that it respires both anaerobically when it's in the body and aerobically when it comes out of the body. To the extent that um, once it uh, once it touches oxygen, it becomes super active and destroys the host. Which is why, if you have an open wound from a massive stake, suddenly the 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 um, the, the germ comes out and it turns the entire body into ash. I used this germ theory of vampires um, like more than 20 years ago when I ran my game Department V, which you know still sticks in the mind because I had a great set of players and um, uh, everything just seemed to work. And the idea there was, was that, yes, vampirism is basically transmitted by a germ. It was actually by uh, viral colonies. You know, they talk, There's this whole thing about the Atlantean colonies and the Atlantean colonies, instead of being a bunch of human-scale tribes, they're, a bunch of, they're basically a bunch of germs that colonise bodies so they can walk around in them. And the idea being that um, this vampiric infection actually turned humans into aliens. So what my players did was we, you know, we, we all approached it from a very scientific view and we, we even went a bit CSI with it. Uh, my players would dissect vampire corpses whenever they could and find um, weird and wonderful organs growing next to human organs and in some ways 
you know, taking over the entire body inside. And, um, yeah, not me. I think, like, Guillermo del Toro uh, vampire. I can't remember what it's called. Oh, the Strain, I think it's called. That is all about, you know, basically being infected by a, by a parasite and then it changing your physiology entirely. Um, so, not particularly new, but it was a lot of fun. But... Um, Certainly the joy of that came out of the actual scientific exploration and the, uh, the the players gradually assembling a theory about what vampirism was and whether or not they could deal with it. Certainly the most memorable scenes were around the dissection table. Careful what you eat and drink, by the way. And talking more broadly about horror, I mean, I think this is this sort of thinking about it in scientific terms. This is very much my comfort zone for horror. I like to regard Call of Cthulhu in very scientific terms, and I think that's right because it's it's as much science fiction as horror. Certainly, things like the uh, the Tillinghast resonator, the idea that you actually stimulate a part of the brain and then you can see adjacent dimensions, or um, of course the color out of space with the, the whole idea of contagion, and then of course Jeff Vandermeer's Annihilation. Um, it's basically the colour out of space. And when I ran that as a game with Cthulhu Dark, it was very much, again, science-focused. It was all, you know, what do you observe, then drawing conclusions about what you observe. Good fun. Um, what I think you do have to do when you run games like that is you have to, you volunteer information. You've got players who are up for it and up for talking about the science in this way. You volunteer information to the group. And if they're up for it, they'll take that and they'll, they'll expand on it and run with it. That can be pretty good when, when it works. I guess my final thought on this is there's a big crossover between modern uh, vampire investigation and the X-Files. Again, sort of monster of the week type episodic plot going from place to place, looking at cases and trying to come up with a a unified theory for the different phenomenon you're you're observing. Yeah, I mean, that's totally my bag. I I think if you're going to call characters investigators, you've got to go for the science. Before I get to the other thing I want to talk about, I'm just going to make this point clear. I'm going to skip over the post-apocalyptic stuff because I don't think there's anything I could say in this particular thing about the apocalypse that I haven't said in other episodes. I'm sure the listener can imagine what it's like, you know, living in a a post-apocalyptic society or being isolated. And, you know, we have plenty of role-playing games that do that. What I want to then talk about, though, is... um, what I would call, well, in my notes, I've called it proper vampires in quotation marks. So the reason I wanted to talk about this is um, back in the early 90s when vampire was a thing, I remember you know, being terribly excited by uh, Vampire the Masquerade first edition. I remember having this conversation with an acquaintance who ha- who was uh, had nothing good to say about the game. He didn't like the system. He called it inelegant, and I think he had a damn good point. Uh, and he certainly didn't like the idea of Anne Rice-style vampire protagonists. You know, he said, you know, you you look in the Call of Cthulhu rulebook, and you look at the illustration of the Groglin vampire by Les Edwards. That's a vampire, he said. You know, vampires should be horrific and nasty and not relatable as humans. They They should be monstrous. And I know, so obviously, Vampire was sold on this whole idea about um, a monster I am, less than monster I become. Uh, I think that was the right quote, yeah. The idea that you have to do things that are marginally unspeakable so you don't become totally feral. Of course, that's not the way the Vampire played out. Uh, it stopped being a game about personal horror. It became a game about fanged superheroes. And I've, I've said that before. I'm not going to say it again. Um, but this notion of proper vampires... 
um, this was kind of a turning point this in the early 90s of the idea that previously vampires were these monstrous opponents and now they were they were suddenly something you'd want to play because you could see a certain amount of humanity in them nothing wrong with playing a vampire the interesting thing about this in relation to Iron Legend is of course um, Neville shifts from being the protagonist to an antagonist at least in the eyes of the up and coming vampire society and at the same time it's clear that the vampire society are shifting from faceless antagonists to the human race and therefore they are becoming protagonists so it kind of gave me this idea that the idea of a uh, an alien vampire shifting from antagonist to protagonist happened a lot earlier in uh, in science fiction than i previously given it credit you know originally i thought well it's obviously it all started around with Anne rice now back when i ran department via i mentioned earlier um all the bad guys, the vampires, which the, the characters were investigating, I, I kind of totally went against the World of Darkness thing because that had become, oh yeah, all the all the monsters are actually relatable human-type protagonists. Even when they're the bad guys, they're, they're basically, they basically look human. So I, I wanted to do exactly the opposite and I wanted them to appear really alien. Not necessarily monstrous, but just kind of incomprehensible. So this idea that, that they were, um, first of all, they were basically a bunch of a colony of hive mind intelligent germs piloting human bodies around and and that was the foundation for the 13 different bloodlines um secondly though the supernatural basically that the, the characters had this exposure stat that i read down and, and the idea was that the more they got exposed to the supernatural the more they could see it so it worked very much like uh, a sensitizer and you know once once you're exposed to it before you're exposed to it sorry um you can't, you, it, it doesn't mean anything to you. But once the sensitizing agent of the supernatural, in this case, some sort of um, spore or secretion that came from the alien body, um, once that infected a human, they became sensitized to the supernatural and therefore they could see more and more of it. Vampires weren't actually the humans they appeared to be. They weren't the people they used to be. They were simply shells being piloted around by something else. I think we've very much softened the idea of like um, vampires and werewolves in the post-Buffy era. Even the vampires, once uh, once we started having in Buffy the Vampire Slayer um, vampire main characters who the audience was supposed to sympathise with and like, the vampires became these you know watered down entities. They they didn't hark back to the totally inhuman groglin vampire. They were just something with an evil face. Of course, in Buffy, there's the idea with vampiric transmission is you actually lose your soul. Um, and in some ways, I kind of find that even worse than the idea that the person is entirely replaced by something else. Because that's then you, you've got a human character and then suddenly they're turning into a vampire and they've got an excuse for being as evil as they want to be. There's no real nuance there. Um, I think it's the, uh, there was a really good objection made of the Nephilim role-playing game by by the System Mastery podcast, where they said, well, yeah, oh yeah, you make Adolf Hitler a Nephilim, you basically, you're excusing all the horrible people in the world um, for being horrible, because you're saying, oh, they're just possessed, or they're just monsters, or, or they're just fantastic creatures, whereas it's not really forcing humans to own their unpleasantness. And that's partly the issue with a, uh, you know, if you have a vampire that just is somebody who's lost their soul and they can be as nasty as they like. 
So I much prefer the idea of a proper vampire not really being on the same moral scale as a human. And sure, they may have, as they were younger, they may have seen no point in actually pretending to be human. I do think that uh, when Vampire did the uh, the roads, the the alternatives to humanity, that was kind of interesting. But by then, I I'd also lost patience with all the splat books. But the idea that you follow a different moral code, yeah, not bad. You know, base it on the need to survive. Okay. I'd have to speak to somebody who's actually played through the, the Sabbat and the Dark Ages stuff uh, more than I have to to work out if it was actually worthwhile. But it seemed like a good idea in principle. But yeah, I'd prefer my vampires to be totally alien and unknowable, not pretending to be human, not seeing the point in being human, and um, try to play them from that point of view. And whether they're monsters in your game or just something weird and alien and inexplicable that's fine. Just don't try to make them human. It's being done. This person who, who was so down on Vampire the Masquerade, I think they have a damn fine point these days because um, they're not vampires. You know, Angel isn't a vampire. Now, 20 or 30 years on, what have we got? We've got this sort of very generic cookie cutter, um, extremely tiresome approach to uh, urban fantasy that has been replicated ad nauseum through countless TV YA series and a fair number of role-playing games as well. I think Ghosts of Albion might be an exception to that. I think they actually had a pretty good take on vampires and such. All right, so I've rambled on a bit about themes now. Let's talk about other media. And I think the first thing to talk about is the three different movies which have been based on I Am Legend. The first one is The Last Man on Earth from 1964, and this starred Vincent Price. And this is probably the most faithful adaptation. It's pretty good. You can get it on Amazon Prime at the moment. Uh, and although slightly overacted, well, who can say no to Vincent Price? Um, I thought it was really pretty good. I mean, it was dark and moody and rather depressing and extremely sparse the way it was filmed. Um and, uh, and as I say, it follows the plot very closely. There are a couple of bits where it, it kind of condenses things together, but mostly uh, you do have this this um, this introspection and you do have the reversal of who the protagonist is towards the end. So that's pretty good. And the second one is The Omega Man with Charlton Heston. And I haven't seen that. I've just read the synopsis. It's apparently very, very different. And that's from 1971. The third one is, of course, uh, 2007's I Am Legend, starring Will Smith, which is an absolute travesty. Well, not not a total travesty. I do think that the first half of it is pretty good. Um, I really like the the sense of you know Will Smith living on his own in a, an overgrown Manhattan, um, you know, trying to live day to day and survive against the vampires, and at the same time pursue his scientific studies. The problem with it is the second half deviates so far from the original message it doesn't have any redemption for the vampires it doesn't have them uh, acquiring intelligence and self-organizing in the same way it simply has them you know directing all their energies to killing him and it turns it into yet another apocalyptic survival story um not great but it's worth watching for the first half particularly um particularly golfing off the aircraft carrier. That's pretty cool. 
other things to look at and read. Well, The Vampire in Europe by Montague Summers is name-checked in the book, uh, and that is, um, that's kind of an interesting book. You can probably get it for dead cheap. My, my copy cost a couple of quid. Um, it was first published in 1929, and it's basically a catalogue of different types of vampires throughout Europe. Um, uh, it goes through, let's see, Greece and Rome, um, Britain and Ireland, uh, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, now I've not read it for long. Uh, I, I've barely dipped into it in advance of this episode. Um, but I'll put it in the show notes. You might want to check it out if you want to um, explore vampire myths, if that sort of thing interests you. Uh, one other book I want to mention is one I've mentioned before, which is Arctos by Jocelyn Godwin. And the reason I'm mentioning that is because that's where I got the idea for Department V with the sort of um, ages of man of um, first the Atlantean colonies formed ethereal bodies and then they formed giant bodies uh, and then they became uh, hermaphrodites, uh, egg-laying hermaphrodites and then they, they separated out into two sexes in the fourth race. So I had this, this idea that um, initially these ethereal bodies were actually just the, uh, the uh, Atlantean germs being blown on the winds and drifting like, I don't know, clouds of nanites from the Diamond Age sort of uh, just roaming over the earth and then they gradually formed these gigantic monstrous bodies like um, which would very much be the, the nephilim of old you know supposedly the angels copulating with humans and producing giants and it was these giants were actually these the um you know the atlanteans forming really badly these these initial race and then of course we get the um uh, the sort of more human-like third and fourth races and the idea being that humanity was kind of an offshoot of those where somehow the bodies that these these sort of supernatural beings had formed for themselves um, when they started to reproduce they reproduced with less and less Atlantean in them in, in, until they humans became a separate race in their own right. I can't remember how much of that I made up and how much of that I read into the text but it's kind of interesting. And it talks about polar tilt and a few other things like that. So that's worth looking at. What else? Well, there's um, there's George R. R. Martin's, uh, one of his only decent books, in my opinion, which is Fever Dream, uh, which is Steamboat Vampires. That's much more about vampiric society. But it does have a certain amount about vampires overcoming their, their feral nature by the use of potions which they've concocted that, you know, keep the beast in check as it were less sciencey but you know still still good fun great novel uh, i remember enjoying it although it's a few years since i've read it and then the last bit of fiction i want to mention is um a tv series called ultraviolet now the the thing about this is it aired at the same time i was running department v and it was very hard to convince people that i hadn't just ripped it off i actually started it like about a month before the series but it did so many things which were similar to what i was doing um Features a bunch of quite young actors, including Susanna Harker as a doctor, um, a young Idris Elba as a sort of um, ex-military bodyguard sort of muscle type who ran into vampires whilst he was on tour somewhere and and as a result he was recruited into the um effectively the inquisition there they're, they're uh, a, a vampire hunting organization sponsored by the catholic church and then there's jack davenport's character who was also you know suddenly exposed to the ideas of vampires because his best mate who's getting married uh turned out to be a vampire and um he 
just about got away with his life from his mate and then he got recruited as well and as a result he was living a double life one as a uh, day job as a policeman and then on the side he was then uh, spying on vampires for the inquisition very tense very british and in terms of the conversation here what it did was very much the science end of vampirism he talked about what the vampires were doing in order to preserve their race um and it was uh, they were doing a number of things like um creating artificial blood uh, and then I, I think with something to do with the biochemistry of sickle cell anemia they were using certain types of people tasting artificial blood or plasma that had been put into people as an idea that they could synthesize blood artificially when their herd decreased in size their end game uh, was apparently to create a, a nuclear exchange with a nuclear winter which would blot out the sun for uh, a few years and allow them to establish total dominance because that was one of the nice things about them was they, they really were sort of frightening things it was you didn't really see them do anything it was all implied but the idea was that if it was night time and they were an, an awakened vampire there's nothing you could do against them they could take your life very easily and um, you'd only really survive by luck and the inquisition were fighting them with grenades that that protrude that projected wooden splinters and and bullets that were carbon based in this case the, the mirrors didn't work so, and also vampires couldn't appear on surveillance systems or any kind of reproductive media so they had um special cameras that they could use to try to look at people who were vampires uh, and people who were vampires just wouldn't turn up on film and wouldn't turn up on the video cameras uh, and that led to a few other interesting things about how vampires actually communicate in the electronic age. A certain amount went into the blood science as well, the idea that you know, being bitten, most people don't know they've been bitten. So there's this idea that if you get bitten by a vampire, you're actually sensitised to it. And then apparently that's what causes you to be more susceptible to vampiric command. So it, it does go back to this idea that um, of a sensitising agent that then invades the body and uh, and... You know, makes you puts yourself more at risk to the parasite in your mist really fantastic series um only lasted for six episodes and um i heartily recommend you check it out if you don't already know it of course role-playing wise i do want to give a special mention to the role-playing game chill that was pretty much the sort of the alternative to call of cthulhu uh, i've got the mayfair edition the second edition and they did um, a whole load of splat books that were focused on a particular kind of supernatural legend. So they did one for vampires. They've also got a thing called the Chill Companion, which is how you set the tone for different kinds, different genres of horror. And um, I actually own the vampire one. That's a shame. I do have the, the apparitions one, and it's very, very good. You know, if you wanted to specifically have a, a story that was based on, on hunting vengeful ghosts, that, that, that would be terrific. So I imagine the vampire one and the werewolf one are equally worthwhile if you can find them. As for the World of Darkness stuff, would I recommend it? I still love my first edition copy of Vampire because it's a massively de-emphasised uh, you know, classes and levels. It was a total revelation. And the thing it promised were things like, uh, you know, Methuselahs and Antediluvians, suggesting that these were so far removed from what it was like to be human that they were totally alien. The problem is, of course, then with, with metaplot after metaplot and splat book after splat book, 
you ended with you know shrinking the world of darkness there was no fruitful void there was no place where you could sort of you could look at vampire and say i, I don't know what an antediluvian is but it sounds it could be any number of things and it sounds horrifying um so i don't have a lot of time for vampire past the first edition um, another example of the first edition is that it talked about lupines uh, between the first edition and the second edition of course werewolf was was published so then werewolves were no longer seen as simply antagonists to beat up vampires they were they were then potentially protagonists or even games i remember where people would they would consciously mix up the terminology from the different games referring to werewolves as garou instead of lupines um so I, I also detested the sort of uh, congealing conglomeration of the whole world of darkness. I would have liked to see them as separate, discrete games. But you can't have everything. The world of darkness stuff I really do like. Uh, it tends to be the things that are you know, right on the fringes. Wraith I have a lot of time for. I like both versions of Changeling, actually. Um, and I think they stand alone really well. Uh, but that's kind of off topic for here. But, you know, I can imagine running a changeling game and, you know, using the red cat myths for vampires. And of course, the changeling myth is the idea that a, a red cat bit cane or something like that. And that's where vampires came from. Uh, OK, if you like that sort of thing. Um, yeah, mixed feelings about World of Darkness large part of my uh, my sort of 90s role playing was that. Um, doesn't really age well, I think. I think they're better systems. They're better takes on the supernatural. All right, I'm going to wrap up this episode. Happy Halloween, everyone. Thank you for listening. And um, if you enjoyed this episode, like, share, subscribe, reach out on social media. The music, as always, is by Chris Zabriskie. Find out more at www.chriszabriskie.com. Till later, bye-bye.